From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Well, we've done it, folks. We've reached the end of 2021. And I want to thank you for joining me this year, giving me some of your time. It's been a great pleasure to start this podcast, not just the Tudors, and I'm grateful for your loyalty. Last time, I think I told you about the number of downloads we'd had, we'd reached 1 million. Last week, I was told we'd reached 2.3 million downloads. And it's wonderful and amazing to me that so many of you have joined me and all my fabulous guests as we've talked about everything from Henry VIII's wardrobe through to Oliver Cromwell's battles. We've been into big subjects like Tokugawa Japan and to tiny subjects such as what a beard can tell you about a man in the Renaissance period. And... It's been a great joy. But now's an opportunity to reflect back on the year and also to tell you a bit about what 2021 has found, the discoveries of this year. I'd start by telling you about the five books relating to this period that I have found most enjoyable this year. I'm only going to talk to you about historical books that aren't fiction, so non-fiction historical books, and they have to relate to the period between the late 15th and early 18th century, the period that we broadly cover on this podcast. And it was very difficult for me to choose five, but I've whittled it down And these are the five I want to recommend that were published in 2021. So they are arranged by author's surname. And the first I want to recommend that came out this year from Oxford University Press is Nadine Ackman's Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Hearts. Elizabeth Stuart was the daughter of James VI of Scotland and first of England. She became the Queen of Bohemia and she spent 40 years in exile in The Hague. She had an eventful life. Her elder brother Henry had died of typhoid in 1609. She was widowed at 36 with 10 surviving children and her younger brother became Charles I against whom Parliament went to war and who was executed in 1649. As the grandmother of George I, she is the direct ancestor of the current British royal family and yet she has been both much forgotten and much maligned. 
But this biography shows us how you resurrect an early modern woman, and it's masterful. Dr. Ackerman will be coming on the pod, I'm pleased to say, in the new year to talk about the book. But it's worth noting that in order to write this, Dr. Ackerman spent 15 years compiling and editing Elizabeth's correspondence. And back in May, she spoke to me about what she had learnt about letter writing and female spies. In the early modern period, women couldn't have a kind of governmental office. So normally they wouldn't be in the secret service because that was a kind of an official function women could not hold. But here, during civil wars, when we have men on the battlefield, imprisoned, or they basically fled to the continent, women had a lot more mobility. They weren't really suspected, often not searched, and they really thought this is an opportunity actually for us to get involved and to save our men. One of the advantages women had in that period is that a lot of people thought of women as being invisible creatures. So in that way, they were already more successful than their male colleagues. They weren't suspected. Men really thought about women as being inferior, physically not capable of having any political thoughts. But their letters also escaped interception often, because when someone from the other side who was trying to intercept messages saw a woman's hand, he thought, well, this is clearly written by a woman, and therefore she will talk about domestic tittle-tattle gossip. There's no need for me to look at a letter. And that letter escaped interception. My next choice of the best books of this period from 2021 is James G. Clarke's The Dissolution of the Monasteries and New History, published by Yale University Press. This is an extraordinary and impressive piece of scholarship. It offers a forensic investigation of how and why, under Henry VIII, monasticism was brought to such a swift and, frankly, merciless end, and also really examines the profound social consequences of the dissolution. It's written in marvellously clear prose, and it's so deeply researched. It is, as Ian Mortimer has called it, a magnificent landmark book. I hope that I can persuade Professor Clark onto the pod in the new year to discuss it. My third choice is Malcolm Gaskell's The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death in the New World, published by Alan Lane. This wonderful book tells the story of a confessed witch who accused her husband of the same crime in Springfield, Massachusetts, in 1661, four decades before the Salem witch trials. The book vividly depicts life in early colonial New England, and it brilliantly uses witness depositions to piece together a frankly thrilling narrative. Professor Gaskill came onto the pod to discuss it in October. I think we need to think about the extreme anger that one sees generated between neighbours, which is actually caused by a failure of obligation and expectation. If there's a wide gulf of social difference, then maybe one's expectations of that neighbour are not as great. But if somebody is just like you and you've had this very dependent relationship and you say give them milk and they give you firewood and no money changes hands it's a tacit understanding that you share things if somebody starts to step out of that 
and starts to resent giving something or denies it or doesn't give as much or simply just doesn't speak nicely. And I think this is part of Hugh's problem or doesn't speak at all, which is another one of Hugh's problems. He seems to be either mute or threatening people. And again, that there are expectations that you should follow certain kinds of code. So I think it's because these people are kind of quite similar that they have very particular kinds of expectations of one another, which are actually, well, certainly for Hugh and actually for Mary, quite easy to breach. So one of the things, for example, that really starts their fall from grace, if ever they were in a position of grace, is that Mary starts talking about her suspicions of witchcraft. And that seems odd. You know, that just seems out of keeping with the normal culture and conversation of women in Springfield. But, you know, if you're obsessed by witches, then maybe there's something wrong. Many women suffer from postnatal depression, but it's possible that Mary Parsons is suffering from postpartum psychosis, which is much rarer and affects about one in every hundred thousand women. And I saw something recently, a poet, Laura Dockrell, who suffered from postpartum psychosis, said it was like being hijacked by a devil. And of course, that really resonated with me because she just didn't feel herself. And it can cause delusions and hallucinations and a sense that your mind is not your own. So again, we don't know. Mary Parsons does seem to be suffering from some kind of mental illness. But certainly if it was postpartum psychosis, it would fit with the kinds of things that she says and the things that she feels, and particularly this kind of paranoia that seems so out of step with the way that other women think about their world. The Ruin of All Witches is imaginative, it's empathetic, it's empirical. It's simply one of the best history books I've ever read. And another book I would have to put into that elevated category is Ronald Hutton's The Making of Oliver Cromwell, published by Yale University Press. The book focuses on the first 48 years of Oliver Cromwell's life. It's projected as the first of a trilogy. So this book looks from his birth to his establishment as a national figure. It finishes in 1646. And it's really simply wonderful. It radically reassesses Cromwell and it does so in a very interrogative way where it really shows its workings but it also does so in spellbinding prose. It evokes the period beautifully and it describes the battles and strategies of the civil war in ways that even I could understand. Professor Hutton came onto the podcast in November to discuss what he calls the greatest commoner of all time. He's a born soldier Also, he's extraordinarily lucky. He is always or virtually always in a well-trained, very well-equipped and well-paid force, which outnumbers its enemy. And this is the crucial thing. If, as I've said, the classic cavalry encounter is two lines of men with bodies of horsemen at their back shoving at each other, if you have equally good discipline, training and equipment, the side that's most likely to win is the bigger body of horsemen. And Cromwell's always got the bigger body of horsemen. I don't trust him. I enjoy his company. He is fascinating. And I admire his talents considerably. But there's no point in having Cromwell to dinner other than to be entertained with his heavily skewed version of events, which I kind of know already from his own writings and speeches. He did have a really puerile taste in party games. So, yeah, I think even I would pass on having Oliver as a social guest. 
as a business partner, he's really very interesting. And my final top recommendation of books published on this period that we focus on in Not Just the Tudors from 2021 is Franny Moyles, The King's Painter, The Life and Times of Hans Holbein, published by Head of Zeus. It's a beautifully written, gorgeously illustrated book that does the seemingly impossible. It brings to life a man whose documentary paper trail is slender. What it does is it uses the rich visual evidence that we have to examine the world of this greatest of portrait artists, Hans Holbein, through whose eyes we see 16th century Europe and especially Henry VIII's court. It's a real joy to read. Franny Moyle was part of my wonderful panel on Holbein back in September. What I find really fascinating about his work is the degree of ambiguity one can find in it looking back from the perspective of the future. Was that built into it or is that just because his eye was so good that he could really capture the truth with all its ambiguities? And what I mean by that is, for example, I look at that portrait of Henry and I think Henry's a monster. And so I see a sort of puffed up balloon faced, impotent guy. And I can see all that in that painting. But of course, Holbein would not have dared suggest that overtly to a king who wanted to see himself as a magnificent figure posing as a colossus. And yet everything is there. And I think everything is there because that is the truth. You know, Henry was a sort of degenerating, overweight, ill, impotent man, nevertheless posing as a colossus. And his brilliance of his perception and its nuance is so great that those ambiguities are there and have persisted and have allowed people to see all sorts mm. of things in those characters. The other thing I would say is... Holbein, of course, did depend and encourage interaction from his viewers. So I feel, to some extent, justified in allowing my own imaginative response to the paintings. But particularly when one looks at some of them in the flesh, I do get a sense of sometimes tenderness, sometimes lack of tenderness. It's very hard to explain why how that is achieved, but particularly in his portrait of his wife, which is in Basel, which in reproduction looks rather melancholy and dour. Actually, in the flesh, it is painted with such wonderful finesse and empathy. You do feel, I think, something of the artist's relationship with the sitter. But the past was a very different place and I think it is very hard to get a real detailed handle on him. When we think about the Tudor period, it's easy to think that we know everything we could possibly know and that there isn't anything left to discover. But 2021 has shown just how erroneous a conclusion that is. There have been an astonishing number of finds and discoveries this year. And I wanted to bring you up to date on all that has been found. OK, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. 
Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. started with a discovery in Warwickshire in January of 2021 in a dig in preparation for HS2 archaeologists at Coles Hill Manor found the outline of Elizabethan gardens these gardens would have been on the scale of the ornamental gardens at Hampton Court Palace or those at Kenilworth with a geometric pattern of gravel paths, planting beds, a pavilion and other ornaments and the gardens and the house were surrounded by an octagonal moat. The house belonged to Sir Robert Digby who married an Irish heiress in 1598 and he probably laid out these gardens to demonstrate his wealth. There's no other surviving record of the garden, there's no plans, there's no mentions in letters or visitors accounts, only this archaeology tells us that these fabulous gardens existed. So this is a really wonderful find, not a bad way to start the year. Then in May 2021, Kate McCaffrey published her findings from examining Amberlynn's printed Book of Hours that's on display at Hever Castle. What she had done is that she had deciphered the inscriptions in this printed Book of Hours to identify its 16th century provenance, its connection to Anne Boleyn, and the chain of women who kept Anne Boleyn's memory alive. Sir John Gage probably is the most famous of the authors inside this book. He was a very prominent politician in Henry's court and later through to the court of Mary I. And it's him and his wife who have both written inside it. Mary West was part of the West family who were the Barons de la War. So they were a fairly prominent family as well. 
and Elizabeth Shirley and Philippa Gage were both daughters of Sir Richard Guildford, who was a close friend of Henry VII by his first wife, although he later married Joan Vaux, who was the lady governess of Margaret and Mary Tudor. So these were kind of people who were known well at Henry's court, but they seem to have been mainly in the provinces in Kent, and especially the women who wrote in this book seem to have been mainly from this area. So sadly, we don't know huge amounts about these individual women. It's always harder to uncover information about the women's lives, but the families that they were part of were important at the time, and especially in Kent. Kate McCaffrey's work is a fantastic piece of historical detection that suggests that Anne's book was protected and Anne's memory was cherished and sustained across the generations after her death, especially within the local female community. The reason it was a brave thing to memorialise Anne was highlighted by another discovery this year. In November 2021, it came to light that, two years earlier, in 2019, an antique carved wooden bird was auctioned for £75. And it has since been identified as Anne Boleyn's heraldic emblem, which was probably removed from Hampton Court Palace after Henry VIII ordered the obliteration of objects that carried Anne's memory, making it one of the few pieces of that decorative scheme that we know to have survived the destruction. It is a falcon wearing an imperial crown, a nod to Henry's position as supreme head of the Church of England, and holding in its claws a sceptre and alighting on a woodstock, a stump, issuing roses. It is exquisitely carved in oak, and it still bears its original gilding. It's approximately 20 centimetres square, and it's somewhat blackened, maybe by soot, which suggests it might have been above a fireplace. It's thought to have been located in Anne's private quarters, and, like the Book of Hours, was probably hidden away by one of Anne's supporters after her death. It was spotted by Paul Fitzsimmons of Marham Church Antiques, who realised the carving was probably royal. And generously, he has lent it back to Hampton Court on a long-term loan. Generous, because the carving is now believed to be worth about £200,000. And while we're on Anne Boleyn, this year, Professor Joanne Delaniva published the first English translation of a French poem written on the 2nd of June, 1536, by Lancelot de Carle, the secretary to the French ambassador to London. It's commonly known as L'Histoire de la Mort d'Anne Boleyn, Reine d'Angleterre, the story or history of the death of Anne Boleyn, Queen of England. And it's an important source to understand Anne's death, not least because it was written within a fortnight of her execution. To prepare her translation, Professor Delaniva consulted all the extant copies of the verse in manuscript and in printed editions and discovered that in one copy, in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, there were an extra 15 lines, more than all the other versions. I think that some of the verses are comparable to other verses that are found in different manuscripts and why they're there and not in others, I'm not quite sure. But there are four verses in particular that read in the English translation. He's describing the moment of Anne's execution and how the witnesses to her execution are reacting to that. And he says that everyone 
on the basis of her mightily steady end, judges her life to have been prudent and believes that they have committed a great offense in having thought so ill of her. And those lines are quite distinctive from anything else that he's written because they are the most explicit with regard to Carl's depiction of her guilt or innocence. And clearly by saying that she has been prudent, which he had said specifically earlier on that he doubted that she was prudent because she wasn't following the path of the prudent mistress Claude de France. Here he's saying her life had been prudent. And prudence is an important virtue. According to Thomas Aquinas, it's the virtue that you need for holding the passions and the appetites in check. So if you know that, if you know your Aquinas, and clearly he as a cleric would have, and many people at the time would have, that's a really loaded expression right there. And it would mean that he is suggesting that not only had she repented of anything, but it's more than that. She probably was not guilty and no one should ever have thought her to be guilty. And that's pretty astounding. This discovery of those extra 15 lines strongly suggests that Descartes thought Anne Boleyn was innocent of the crimes against her, adding another witness to the many who thought that at the time. And since... In May 2021, the new archaeological research on the crew of the Mary Rose got its formal peer-reviewed publication. It's published in the Royal Society's Open Science Journal and was written by Jessica Scora, Katie E. Phelance, Alexandra Hildred, Alexandra Dreen Niederbrook, Morton B. Anderson, Mark Alban Millet, Angela L. Lamb and Richard Madwick. The Mary Rose was the great Tudor warship that sank in the Solent in 1545 in a battle with the French, tragically taking with it a crew of perhaps as many as 500 men. The remains of at least 179 have been found. I'm honoured to be on the board of the Mary Rose Trust, and next year marks the 40th anniversary of her raising from the seabed, when there'll be a podcast special all about her. This new research that was published this year explores what we can know of the individuals that were on board and it answers questions about the composition of the Tudor Navy and whether the crew were largely English or had more diverse origins. The study uses multiple isotope analysis of dental samples to reconstruct the childhood diet and origins of eight members of the Mary Rose crew and forensic ancestry estimates on a subsample. Now, I don't pretend to be able to explain to you at all fully how this works. But, for example, strontium is an isotope that can be found in skeletal tissues and relates to childhood diet. And as people in the past generally ate what could be found in their local area, identifying that isotope tells us about someone's origins. Another isotope derives from ingested fluids, and so it tells us about the local drinking water and so on. And the isotope data tentatively suggests that five crew members seem to have come from Western Britain, and three of the eight originated in warmer, more southern climes than Britain, probably areas around the Mediterranean coastline, inland southern Europe or North Africa. Forensic ancestry analyses suggest that one individual was potentially of African ancestry. Combined with the historical evidence, the findings point, 
and I quote, to the important contributions that individuals of diverse backgrounds made to the English Navy. Also this year in May, Franny Moyle, who wrote, of course, The King's Painter, suggested that a miniature by Hans Holbein the Younger of an unknown woman from around 1540, which was long thought to be Catherine Howard, could actually be Anne of Cleves. Now, the miniature exists in two versions, one in the Royal Collection, one in the Bewley Collection. The picture is watercolour on vellum on a playing card, the Four of Diamonds. It had previously been identified as Catherine Howard because of the jewels that the woman is wearing, especially a large ruby, emerald and pearl jewel, which looks similar to the jewels worn by Jane Seymour in Holbein's panel portrait of her, and we know that jewels were passed down from one of Henry's queens to the next. Jane Seymour, however, also gifted jewels to her ladies-in-waiting, so there is a possibility that the unknown woman could be one of them. It's been suggested at times to be Lady Margaret Douglas, Henry VIII's niece, or Mary Lady Mounteagle, who served in Jane Seymour's household. And it has always looked rather old for the teenage Catherine Howard, though we do have to be conscious of using modern assessments of age. People today look far younger than they did in the 16th century. And we also have, as... Historic Royal Palace's curator Brett Dolman has argued no documentary proof that Catherine's portrait was painted in her lifetime. Moyles' theory is that the sitter was Anne of Cleves, and she argues it on the following grounds. First, that the backing of the miniature is the playing card The Four of Diamonds, and that Holbein deliberately used it to reference that Anne was Henry's fourth wife. Holbein uses playing cards for backing the portraits of Thomas Cromwell, Lady Audley and Jane Small. In two of those three cases, an argument can be made for there being some signification about the use of the playing card. But it is all conjectural. Art historian Roland Hoy, who you may remember joined our panel on Anne Boleyn's life and afterlives in May, has argued that part of the king backed a miniature of Henry Brandon, the son of Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. In short, it isn't certain that the choice of a playing card had meaning. But then again, it may have done. The second grounds is that Anne quickly moved into English fashion, including sporting a French hood after her arrival in England. And this is attested by the chronicler Edward Hall. So she may well have worn the fashion shown here. We don't need to expect her to always be in her German fashion. And the third ground is that there is a distinct facial resemblance between this miniature and the known miniature of Anne of Cleves. The heavy-lidded dark brown eyes, the small rosebud lips, the large droopy nose. The only thing is that the miniature shows a woman with brown hair when Edward Hall describes Anne's hair as fair, yellow and long. But it has to be said, the facial resemblance is notable. I haven't yet read any thoughts on this by someone else, an art historian, for example, who doesn't seem to want a particular outcome. So everyone I've read seems to be weighing up their evidence in pursuit of the conclusion that they seek. The facial resemblance is there, the hair colour is not. The playing card may have significance, it may not. The jewels could have been worn by either queen. The only thing I'd add is that Dr Susan James 
noted that the costume being worn by the sitter, the furs being worn, suggests that the weather was cold when it was painted, which leads us down an interesting rabbit hole. Because 1540 was actually a strange year, meteorologically. In February 1540, rainfall effectively ceased, falling only six times in London between then and September. It wasn't only exceptionally dry, but it was also warm. It's probable that the highest daily temperatures in 1540 were warmer than 2003, which was the warmest year for centuries, apart from the last decade. Charles Risley's Chronicle notes... This year was a hot summer and dry, so that no rain fell from June till eight days after Michaelmas, 29th of September, so that in diverse parts of this realm the people carried their cattle six or seven miles to water them, and also much cattle died, and also there reigned strange sickness among the people in this realm, as lasks, which means dysentery, and hot agues, and also pestilence whereof many people died. Edward Hall noted that the drought dried up wells and small rivers, while the Thames was so shallow that salt water flowed above London Bridge, which polluted the water supply and contributed to the dysentery and cholera killing people in their thousands. And then, even though there was a small respite in autumn and winter, it was followed by a second warm spring, another blisteringly hot summer in 1541. The forests actually began to die because of the lack of rain. And then, finally, in late 1541, the rain fell and it fell, and it fell, and it fell, and 1542 was a year of widespread flooding. Which is to say that Catherine Howard's entire reign as Queen may not have been a time for the wearing of furs, and Anne of Cleves would likely need to have been painted before Easter 1540 to have had need of them. That doesn't give you a conclusion. The jewels and clothing are certainly rich, and it's someone of high status. I too wish we could be certain who it is. As it stands, I'm not sure that we can, but the theory that's been put forward is certainly an intriguing one. November 2021 was a big month for discoveries. A rare half-groat or tuppenny piece minted during the reign of Henry VII was found in Canada. A half-groat is a silver coin, and this one was minted in Canterbury between 1493 and 1499. It's likely to be the oldest English coin ever to be found in Canada, and possibly even in North America. It was discovered by archaeologists at Cupid's, previously Cooper's Cove, in Conception Bay, Newfoundland, which was the site of an English colony, established in 1610 by John Guy of Bristol. So just think about that journey, that the coin circulated for something like 115 years before it was dropped by one of the early colonists in Newfoundland. The coin itself is worn, but it bears a crowned visage of the king on one side, and it has been hailed as a major find. And then, also in November, there was, at the pretty Calverley Old Hall, a manor house in Leeds in Yorkshire, owned by the Landmark Trust, a rather amazing discovery. Let me quote Dr Anna Kay, the director of the Landmark Trust. We were removing the small areas of plaster around the building to see whether the main joints of the great timber frame were still sound. One of the less interesting rooms was the upper chamber of the parlour block, an unremarkable-looking room with plain walls, painted peach colour sometime in the 70s, and a small 1930s fireplace. And when the plaster was removed in five small areas, what they found in black, red, ochre and white 
were 16th century war paintings, laughing birds, classical columns, roaring griffins, fantastical creatures, torsos of men in triangular hats sitting on vases or balustrades, complete with a frieze of Tudor roses and pomegranates across three walls of the chamber. The style is known as grotesque work because the designs can be traced to Emperor Nero's golden villa. Grotesque comes from the Italian word grotesque, meaning literally from the grotto, because in the 1480s, a young man exploring a hillside in Rome fell into a grotto, which was discovered to be not a cave, but the interior of Nero's buried Domus Orera, or golden house, built in the first century. Imitating it became an integral part of the Italian Renaissance. And it was Renaissance fashion also to display one's learning and wealth even through wall paintings. The walls have been dated by dendrochronology, so dating the wooden panels, to between 1514 and 1585. And Sir William Calverley, knighted in 1548 and Sheriff of York a year later, seems most likely to have commissioned the paintings. Dr Kay says that in her whole 30-year career in heritage, she's never before witnessed the discovery of an entire painted chamber absolutely lost to memory. The Landmark Trust are running an appeal to help save the Calverley wall paintings, and I'm sure they'd be grateful if you'd consider donating. But now to the standout discovery of the year. On the 21st of November 2021, Butterscotch auctioneers in New York offered at auction an oil-on-panel painting of a woman. Dressed in an expensive black high-necked gown and matching hood trimmed with white fur, with a small frilled white ruff and matching cuffs all black worked in gold, she looks out at the spectator. She wears a long necklace of pearls looped twice around her neck and tied in a knot, and in her thin fingers she holds tawny gloves. Her face is pale, her nose is long, her eyes dark and her mouth small. The painting was originally catalogued as Portrait of Mary Queen of Scots by Anglo-Dutch School. It was dated to the 17th century and a pre-sale auction estimate said five to $10,000. But then in steps Dr J. Stephen Edwards. Dr Edwards identified the picture as the lost Berry Hill portrait. The Berry Hill portrait is a picture that was in the Berry Hill galleries in New York until 1961 and then disappeared from public view. It was thought to be a picture of Lady Jane Grey. And Dr Edwards knows a thing or two about portraits of Lady Jane Grey because he's the author of A Queen of a New Invention, Portraits of Lady Jane Grey Dudley. So he wrote to the auction house and asked to examine the painting before its sale. And what he found was sufficiently persuasive to be immediately included in the online catalogue description. He's written about his findings on his blog, somegreymatter.com. I'm summarising here from that and from other reports. Based on grainy black and white photographs, the picture had previously been identified by scholars as possibly Lady Jane Grey or her sister Catherine Grey, later Catherine Seymour, Countess of Hartford. On close examination, Dr Stevens found that the portrait probably isn't of Jane Grey. The clothing worn in it suggests that it dates from the late 1550s or the early 1560s. In the period in which it was likely painted, Catherine Grey Seymour was Elizabeth I's heir, under the terms of Henry VIII's will and the 1544 Act of Succession. She was politically and socially significant, 
and significant enough for a portrait to be painted of her. Dr Stevens also noted, however, that the portrait is of a very high level of artistry and execution, and very similar to two other portraits, the Chawton House portrait at Hever Castle and the Gardener's Soul portrait, which is in a private collection. It is, however, of finer artistry than either of those, and therefore he thinks it is likely to have been the prototype that the others are copies of. And this group of portraits is identified as being of Elizabeth I. Now, Dr Edwards suggests that while we can't know for certain at this stage the identity of the sitter, he thinks that we can pretty confidently state that it is either Catherine Seymour, Nee Gray, or Queen Elizabeth I, and either outcome makes the portrait important. Still, writes Dr Edwards, there are further tests that could be done to help identify the sitter. The tests could identify the pigment used to colour the woman's eyes. Now, the Chawton and Soul portraits show a sitter with blue eyes. This actually makes them rather unlikely to be Elizabeth, as her eyes are generally thought to have been dark brown, like those of her mother. And Elizabeth's dark brown eyes appear in authenticated portraits of her. Microscopic analysis of this newly discovered portrait could determine whether the pigment for the eyes was smolt, which degrades from blue to brown over the course of 450 years. If the eyes in all three portraits turn out to be blue, then he suggests that all three portraits should be re-identified as Catherine Seymour Nee Gray, as the Berry Hill portrait is the prototype of the group. But if the pigment for the eyes was originally brown, then the portrait is very likely to be of Elizabeth herself, and the Chawton and Saul portraits would then reflect a copyist's mistake. Infrared photography and radiography could reveal underdrawings, which would show us if this was a portrait made from life, as its quality seems to suggest, or a copy. There might also be identifying marks under the heavy layer of wax on the reverse of the wood panel. Restoration might brighten the colours and reveal new details. And there's one other exciting possibility, dendrochronology, that is the testing of the age of the wooden panel, which could firmly pace the pictures in a narrow time frame, such as the late 1550s, or the early 1560s. If the portrait does prove to be an early portrait of Elizabeth, such wood dating might prove that the painting is a rare early likeness, perhaps even showing Elizabeth during the reign of her sister, Mary I. At auction, the portrait sold to a private collector in the States for $120,000, as you can see, several times more than the original estimate. Let us hope that the new owner wants to resolve the sitter's identity in due course. So that's what 2021 had for us. Let's see what 2022 has in store. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess 
and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.